I had built this very fine facility I spoke about earlier in terms of our Leicester facility. I'd spent a great deal of my personal money building this, I believe, to be the future of the organization. And I got a phone call uh, from Tateline in London, and they said, by the way, we've decided not to use you anymore. So overnight, I was being informed that approximately 80% of my business was gone. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, telling the inspirational stories behind Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs. Hello and welcome to Architects of Business, Joe's interview series with leading entrepreneurs, brought to you in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Sonia Lennon, and today it's my pleasure to be talking to Morris Healy, the founder, CEO and chair of the Healy Group, a food and pharma company with over 200 employees and global reach. Morris is originally from Skibbereen, County Cork, and he's been running the family business for 34 years. And when I say family, I mean family. His four sons are on the executive and his wife is a director. Morris is a keen philanthropist and a game changer in philanthropy in Ireland. As he says himself, giving feels good. Morris Healy of the Healy Group, I'm absolutely delighted to be sitting in such close proximity to you. You look worried. I am seriously worried when no, you said. Not at all, not at all. Your business um, and your business persona are a phenomenal success. And what you've done, I suppose, in terms of your impact, um, not, o not only in, in uh, your company sector, but also in terms of your so social impact, it's extraordinary. Um, I would love to go back to ancient history, to the very beginning. You are for, from such a beautiful part of the world, Skibbereen, um, and you grew up the middle child of nine? Correct, yeah. Um, I was born in 1953, so that tells you how ancient I am. And <laughs> Probably I, shouldn't I, have used the word ancient well, history. I, I'm, just, I'm just reconfirming it to you. <laughs> uh, the, um, yeah, I was number five. Um, my mother was actually interesting because she had, been, she had three children from her first husband, and lost him, unfortunately, wow. in an industrial action uh, uh, accident in Dublin in, in the 40s. And then my dad came along in the late 40s and married him. And I was number two of my dad's children. Okay. So my older brothers are actually O'Tools, even though the, my mum and dad should really make them Heelys, but they're O'Tools. So can I ask you, was your mum a dub before? Oh, she is a dub. She is she, a dub. Sorry, was, of course, yes. which in our heads she still is a yes. dub. Oh, born and bred, yes, okay. absolutely. Cool look. Okay, yeah, very uh, good. Absolutely phenomenal. My dad, of course, my dad was with Scott, but our first husband was actually, was also a cool man. Okay. Okay, well, you're half, half Kulak, half Cork. Well, I'm 100% <laughs> Cork, but I've, when you live in Dublin since 1971, yeah. I feel quite much part of what is Dublin. So tell us about, uh, because I suppose there are a lot of um, preconceptions about the middle child, that they are put upon and that they have to fight for space, that they're trapped in the brackets of their siblings. And yet you defy all that sort of gubbins. Well, well I am trapped. Okay. To this day, now I've lost one of my brothers, Derek. My older brother died a couple of years back, but I am still trapped because I am still the the middle child. And I think, being the middle child, you are actually asked from all angles, north, south, east, and west. So I'm still in that trap. By okay. The way. Uh, Is it a pleasant trap or an unpleasant trap? I enjoy it. Okay. And I love my siblings, so therefore, it isn't a burden. Okay. Very good, very good. So family is hugely important to you. Family is hugely important. That extended family of my siblings and of course now my own family, of course, are huge. And my, now, my, thank God, my grandchildren as well. Fantastic. So your early inspirations 
we're very close to home. My, my mother is the inspiration. I mean, even to this day, I mean, she is part and parcel of who I am, right? And I would safely say if my, all my brothers and sisters were sitting here now, they'd say exactly the same because she influenced every single one of us, right? Uh, she was an entrepreneur. There's no question about that. I mean, when I grew up in 23 Cork Road in Skibbereen, in actual fact, we were very, very, I would say, poor. I got polio in the, in the mid-50s, which was a kind of part of what was the Cork polio epidemic at the time. And that had its own consequences. My, my father had to leave home because it was regarded as he was part of the contagion. And, really? And was gone for the best part of six months. So my mother actually looked after the family. And she was in quarantine living in her home in Cork Road. So it was a terribly difficult time. Uh, and that in itself drove her to be who she was. Now, she had the DNA. And like she was making cake selling on the street outside our front door back in the 50s and actually to make a living. So like you, you, when you grow up with that, now thankfully I had no consequence of polio. So I'm sitting here with you in actual fact with no residual. Uh, Delighted to hear it. Yeah, and, and therefore I must have inherited that part of her. And then she went on to own a restaurant and a guest house and then a second one and a third one and then... I presume we all learn from that. So, so she had an empire? I don't think an empire because she had no concept of money. I told a story many times about her. She regarded VAT as profit. <laughs> That's a dangerous game. Right. That's a dangerous game. So when it came to repaying the VAT in Quebec, she didn't have it because she'd spent it, you know. So like she wasn't the business on, uh, entrepreneur that you would expect it, but she was a business person. And she was an extremely successful business. Like most people who stayed or actually ate in a restaurant came back to see her because she was the person. The that charisma. Made the charisma, absolutely. Fantastic. So... She, she motivated you, I suppose, to, to, to think about your position in the world. So you talked about coming to Dublin in 1971, was it? I did my leaving in 71, and I'd say within two days I was on a, a Dick's transport truck to Dublin because it was the cheapest way to get to Dublin. And my uncle had arranged that, and I ended up, and I was staying with him. I went to live with him, um, my uncle Noel, and... Uh, that was the, the beginning of it, but it wasn't because she was inspiring me to become entrepreneurial. She threw me out. Okay. Like, if, like when you have so many children. Now, my older siblings had gone at that stage, but she actually literally... Everyone has a position on the P&L, right? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> there's no point, and like, it's a cliche in some ways, like, like you, I've served, you've served your time, now get the hell out of here. Yeah. She's got the other younger boys and girls, this is Stephanie and Timmy and Tommy to look after, so like, I need you to get out. And by yeah. the way, when you get out, will you send back a few bucks? Absolutely. So what happened? I came to Dublin, went to work for a fellow called Harry Crosby. Never heard of him. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> I spent a year with Harry. And when I asked Harry, though this is Harry's dad, Harry Senior, I asked him for a rise after a year. And, and he said, why do you need a rise? For God's sake, I'm not paying you enough. I said, well, under those circumstances, I'll resign. He said, you won't resign. I'll sack you. So he sacked me on the Friday. But he gave me a week's notice to work it out. And I wrote to three companies in Dublin. I remember so well, J.S. Lister, Heat McFarm, and a company called Dublin Maritime. And I got applications back from all three of them. And the following Friday, I got an interview with Dublin Maritime. And the next Monday, I actually started in Dublin Maritime in the North Wall Extension. So I was never unemployed. And then when I got into the shipping business, I decided to go back to school because now I'm a year. Hold up a second here now. That's fantastic. So that you got a big punch in the face lesson in life very early on. Yeah. So your um, self-composure got you thrown out the door. Well, it was actually a matter of necessity. I, I was living with my aunt and uncle, so therefore I had to pay to stay. So therefore, I mean, being unemployed was not an option. I would have done anything. I was fortunate that the three people I wrote to knew me. 
having worked with Crosby because they were a big transport company up in Mobile Road. So when I wrote to them, they knew who I was because I was engaging with them on a daily basis. It's the power said, of network. And I actually, I got, I actually got interviewed all three of them. Uh, and again, I'd say this, hopefully that will be understood. But when I went to Heat McFerman JS, they said, they asked me what religion I was. Now, this is 1972. And of course, I was born a, a Roman Catholic. And I didn't get the I didn't get the job. That, that didn't really matter because I said I went and met a man called Com uh, Commander O'Neill on uh, on the Friday afternoon, and he actually can you start Monday morning? And I went down to the Norwall Extension for Double Mart as a runner, which meant that I actually carried the papers for clearing customs. Now, please God, we won't have to go back to that in Brexit. And my job was to fill in the forms to clear goods through customs, and I did that for a year. And then I went back to school, and I studied chartered shipbroking. Fantastic. Yeah. So what was the next step after that then? A company called the National Chemical Company approached me in the mid-70s. Prior to, I, the, the, I got married in 1975 and the girl who was the shipping manager at the time uh, rang me up and she said, I'm thinking of leaving, would you like a job in this chemical company called National Chemical Company? Thankfully, an extremely successful company to this day. And again like that, I went and met the boss, Dennis, and I was, he offered me the job. I started and I went in as shipping manager and I then progressed. I became shipping manager, then I got involved in the purchasing side and I went to Poland and the Czech Republic and Romania and I was, that's where they were buying all their chemicals. And suddenly I was a product manager, I was in charge of selling those goods. That's how I migrated into the sales department. I mean, I, at one point in my life, by the way, when I worked in the shipping business, I wanted to be a, human, a union leader. I just wanted to look after people's welfare and make sure they got the right number of pounds in their pocket. You know? A leader. Well, leadership would possibly be defining it now, but in those days, in fact, I think I was a rebellion. An agitator. <laughs> <laughs> and so, looking back, I suppose, do you acknowledge that your, um, your personability was responsible for a lot of those moving parts as you were moving along? See, it's very easy to look back in hindsight. I have no concept of who I was at that time. I had no concept of my personality. Now, by the way, I fell in love. And uh, I thankfully to this day, I'm married to the same lady. So that must actually helped a little bit, by the way. I was 11 stone. I was exactly the same height. Now you can see how big I am. So therefore, I was a skinny. I can't dish. see anything. Your waistcoat is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I was skinny. So therefore, it, 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 I had no concept of that, by the way. I was ambitious because first and foremost, I wanted to get married. We made that decision in 1974. We bought our house for £10 deposit from Brennan McGowan out in, in Kildamanagh. I remember being with a very good friend of mine, John Gillespie, and he brought me out to Kildamanagh. He'd owned a house in Walkenstown. He said, look at these houses, they're great out in Kildamanagh. And I went out and I loved it. We Adelaide and myself loved it. Now, it was south side. We were living in the north side of the city. And uh, and she was from Artane. Adelaide was an Artane lady. And um, I borrowed the £10 to put down the booking deposit. Now I'm in trouble because I came back to Adelaide's house told her mum and dad I bought a house and they asked me how was I going to pay for it. They told me exactly what happened. And then I had to figure out how am I going to figure out how to pay £7,295 was the value of the house. And I got a mortgage from Dublin County, uh, Dublin, uh, County Council for £44.69 per month. Right? And Adler was a nurse in Brookaveen in, in Cork Street, just around the corner from where we are now. And her standard was £18 and I was an 11. It didn't add up. <laughs> So I had to get three or four jobs. I worked in Carties in the Ivy House in Duncondra. I was doing that. That was just introduced then, by the way, in the 70s. Is when I'm not sure, but you're too young to remember the 
taxes. So we went from wholesaler, to, wholesaler turned over tax to VAT. So I set up a business with another friend of mine, Pat Burke, to actually do people's new VAT returns in order to make more income. So like they were all happening in the 70s. Amazing. Yeah. Even though, by your own admission, you're not particularly a numbers guy, you say. I wouldn't think so, but at the same, remember that it was important for me to own my own home. And to survive, I had to work and have several jobs. And then, like when Adela got pregnant in a year later, of course, and by the way, when she got married, she had to give up her job as well. My mum the same. And, the, and thankfully, the system actually compensated her two or three years later. We got a big lump sum of money because they backdated for the fact that she had lost her job. So all this is going on. You're in um, a position of domestic flux. Everything's looking rosy, if you can just pay for it. So uh, how many ever jobs you're doing, three or four at the time, how did that then transform itself into the birth of the Healy Group? When I worked for National Chemical Company, they paid me exceptionally well. So the second and third jobs, they weren't absolutely necessary. And then the early 80s became quite troublesome. Again, the oil crisis had hit. The company was, the Irish company of a British division, which I was working for in actual fact, was looking at several things. They had run into trouble with regard to the oil industry and what we would call the polymer industry. And I, for some reason in my head, with a friend of mine called Sean Whelan, who is still to this day my accountant, by the way, I sat down having a pint. He used to come to my house to add myself for dinner. He was in articles at the time, and he said, why don't you think about setting your own? And we grew up a business plan. Never waste a good crisis. Back about 1984. And that became the template and, and we had, Adam and myself had saved quite well. Again, in, this is 84 now, by the way. And we went to the bank manager with the idea out in Sutton, Stuart Flanagan, and he said, well, he said, how much have you got? And I told him how much I got. And I said, how much do you need? And I told him how much you need. And he said, now, by the way, Adam, do you realize we need security? And the Family Protection Act had been introduced that time. So that meant that Adam had to sign the house over as part of security, which, of course, would have been... Adelaide possibly didn't even understand, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, sure. but she did it, thankfully. And that was the beginning of the story of the Healy Group, which started on the 1st of October 1985. What is the Healy Group? Wow. They described it, I think, as a confused, old-fashioned conglomerate. <laughs> who described it as that? Someone in the Irish Times. Oh, hilarious. We won't talk about who he is at but the But anyway, you founded it and you own it, so you better describe it. Well, it is a conglomerate of sorts, we don't see it as that. Um, so it is, it's quite divisionalized. So it's best to describe it in divisions. So essentially, the core of the Healy Group is food ingredients. Um, and the progression over the last 30 odd years, in actual fact, we have acquired companies. We have a very strong connection with a company, and I own a significant proportion of a company called Camida in Clonmel which is a pharmaceutical company. So they do exactly the same as we do in the, we say, the food ingredients business, except for the pharmaceutical sector. Okay. And then we have a chemical sector, even though that the company started off as the Healy Chemicals, Healy Chemicals Ireland Limited. We have divisions now which are chemical, which are specialized in specific areas, um, uh, particularly with regard to coatings or paints, to all intents and purposes. And then in, in China, we have a food in, or, um, health and nutrition division, we built a plant in Uganda to do chia seed production. And in the last couple... And that is a social enterprise. It is a social enterprise, and it was set up with the intention of supporting farmers in Uganda. And that's another story, because I was involved and have been involved in Uganda for quite a number of years. Uh, but and we're going to come back to yeah. that side of, of your story, which is um, 
fantastic. But I, I'm I'm wondering the the early work, uh, which was um, in in the seventies and early eighties, uh, quite an international uh, workload that you had. You were moving around. You're going to Poland. You're going to the UK. You're going all over the place. Do you think that that um, coloured? Uh, your international expansion of Healy Group. Do you, f do you feel that that was kind of a given for you? I wish I could say yes to that too, but I don't think so. However, there is obviously a subconscious part of everything you do. Uh, I've always enjoyed the idea of actually getting on a plane and traveling, right? So therefore, however, I would imagine that the expansion of the Healy Group came about because of actually the narrowness or maybe the size of the Irish opportunity. And therefore, the natural progression, as everyone would say, you go to the English-speaking countries, which I went to Great Britain. And when I went into Great Britain again in the, in the early 90s, I did with the whole intention of replicating what I was doing here. Now, our focus had moved predominantly to food at that stage. So therefore, we had effectively kept the, the, the chemical business in the background because it was actually bread and butter stuff. But we wanted to focus into the food sector because that's where the growth we've in our heads believed it. And that, of course, the opportunity there of 60, 60 70 million audience and um, opportunity grew, it just made it happen. And I have to say that our successes in the United Kingdom have been extremely well, done very well because of the fact of the size of that market. And then when you're successful, people hear about it. Mm. And because we have certain niche areas, a lot of what our opportunities that grew in international markets came because of a pull rather than a push. So you are world leaders and in some cases the only people in the world who can do certain things. There is a certain product range that we have that we are very proud of, that we believe we're the only company in the world that can actually produce it. That must feel amazing to know that you... Uh, uh, slightly terrible. My heart is fluttering <laughs> in case there's somebody listening to me who actually wants to know what we're doing. We and have how a very we're large audience, Morris. <laughs> <laughs> You're you going are. global all over mm. again. Mm. Um, and, and I suppose I'm fascinated by that because the company that you founded versus the company that you're chairing today, they're two completely different things. Oh, absolutely, for God's sake. And, and, and by the way, the, the person that you're talking to is a changed person as well. I mean, the person that if you met me in the same condition or the same kind of interview situation back in the 80s or even the 90s or even to the, into the early noughties, I felt maybe a little bit arrogant at the time. Did I felt, you? Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine. Yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. imagine. So I, I see myself as completely different in my personality now because I actually, I think I'm calmer, certainly significantly older. I think my priorities significantly changed. Uh, I don't have that propensity for personality about myself as I used to think I had in the past. So things have changed a lot. A mellowing of the ego. Well, I, everybody has an ego. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not certain if I actually believe I had, but of course I have. Mm. Whether I still have it to the same degree I had in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I think quite different. So you do work with family, which is notoriously um, nuanced and difficult at times. How, how does it play out with your four sons and what are their roles? Well, see, you should really start with them. Okay. In, 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 Are they here? <laughs> I'll, I'll try and replicate in one sense their answer to everything. Each one of my children, David, Anthony, Garrett and Timothy, by the way, did not set out with the intention of ever becoming part of the business. And that was our desire, added myself. What actually happened was they migrated into it. Like, Anthony, Garrett came in first but left and went away. But Anthony came in because I was struggling with getting a financial manager who actually could give me the type of reporting that actually would make me feel comfortable. And when he came back, Anthony studied hotel management. He went on, went on to become an accountant. 
And when he came into me one day, he said, like, I wouldn't mind working for you. Hold up there for a little second. What is the type of reporting? See, the thing about it is that when you rely on somebody else to tell you if you have or have not uh -huh. got money, and they don't always tell you the truth, you can never make the correct decision the following day if it happens to be a lie. I wanted transparency to a degree. I wanted always the truth. But I also always wanted the truth on time. I didn't want the agenda of what I was being told of how much profit I was being made at the behest of the Through person. somebody else's prism. Because the person who's actually delivering it needs to know what my agenda is and what the agenda of the company. And was that, was that based on experience? Had, had you been... I had enormous problems up to the time mm. my, my saviour, and I call him my saviour, Anthony walked into my office and said, I'm coming to work for you. And I said, when? He said, Monday morning. I remember getting into my car, driving down to West Cork to my home in Ballyliki, Adley myself, and my whole sense of relief. Amazing. This is when I did weeks of enjoying the company. I never worried to this day. About what a great my, feeling. But exactly my point. And every other time prior to that, in the 15 or 18 or 20 years prior to that, when I had other people working for me as employees, I worried every single day. So Anthony is the money man. He's the bag man, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. And, and he, that's, he allows you to <coughs> sleep at night. He allows everyone to sleep at night. That's the problem because I don't want him to have the burden of that responsibility. So therefore the other three, David and then Timmy and Gar, have to share the, the burden of managing the businesses. It's easy to count money when you're making money. Yeah. Go it's on. The, the next. Next son. Well, David is the oldest. Yes. Right? David was born in 1977. He's a July boy. He's a nerd. He'll tell me if, I mean, if he ever sees this interview. He's an anorak. He's bound he's, to see it, Morris. He's, Everyone's going to see it. No, he's, he's <laughs> just an, he, he lives literally up here in the South Sector Road, hundreds of yards from here, by the way, on his own with his dog. He's very content. He's a kind of a computer nerdy kind of individual and gorgeous and handsome like his father. And, and he's just David, right? But like he's the kind of sense and rock. He will never, ever inspire how the business should be run. But he actually, his physical presence and his, his calmness in actually helps the others to remain calm. So what, what is his role? He is kind of IT, kind of information technology, social media, things that actually would drive the business in the direction the others don't know how to go bring it. Interesting. And then Anthony steps in as the financial man. Yes. And then Garth, of course, is the salesman. Like he's the front of house, he's the maitre d'. <coughs> and Tim possibly is me, Interesting. Yeah. What, what's that role in its new t t t iteration? I think he does all the things that I would have done in my time when, when I was his age. He worries too much. Uh, he runs the divisions below the general core business. So that I've described, we say, the kind of the core activity above the line. There's a couple of things under the line that they're not under the line at all. So he runs the factory in Nace, which is making this desserts for the supermarkets chains. And, and he was responsible for bringing that business Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember, I remember walking in the door when he walked in with the two girls who actually owned the business at the time, and they walked in the door, and they were at Margaret and Celine. And I said, yeah, and they brought in the samples. And I said, oh, no, I'm not a dessert person. This is from Pints, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, and, I, and, and, and I said, these are fantastic, God. And then I got in my car, drove up into Kitchikor, and then I drove down to Enterprise Ireland. Before I knew it, I'd bought it. Can happen. Yeah. It can happen one minute you wake up and you have one company, then you have two oh. and three. <laughs> great credit to Timmy. He stepped up immediately and said that he would run it. Now, that's 
four Does years. He chief diversification officer. Well, that was his job because we set up an organisation called Gainline Capital with, a, with an investment fund with the idea of actually diversifying Fantastic. into areas that we were not active in. And he was the one who picked and chose. And uh, like we uh, we own the Chili Shack range, which is a kind of a couple of burrito bars in mm. Galway and Dublin, and a couple in the South Circular, North Circular Road and so forth. We have investments in other little small restaurants and cookie company in Thomas Street and so forth. And we got involved in luxury title company in West Cork. And we have another couple of things in, 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 in America as well. But they're kind of, we call them peripheral stuff, but he runs all that. Yeah. But his primary function is as the fourth son in actual fact is to look after the factory in Nace and do all the other things as well. And have eyes on the greater market. And that's a manufacturing site. Yeah. And even though we were in, in Chicor and we closed that site because we didn't own it, and then we bought the new site, and that took about a year to get ready and prepared for it. We opened that in January of last year. And thank God, and his holy mother, we've turned the corner because it was a loss-making organisation. And that is primary down to Timmy's endeavourment and Anthony managing the pound shillings and pence. It's a well-oiled machine. Absolutely. That is such a joy to hear. And we're going to take a little break now. And when we come back, we're going to talk to you about philanthropy. Thank you. Thank you. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm dying to talk to you about this. The subject of philanthropy and social impact as part of who you are and part of the business that you run with your family. I know you speak very well on this subject and have very strong views. I know a little bit about the philanthropic landscape in Ireland. I know that it is quite under the radar, which isn't to say that it isn't happening, but it doesn't move at the same rate as it does, say, in the US. It's a very different beast. First of all, the model in the United States, by the way, is significantly different because of the tax situation in the United States. So philanthropy is encouraged through taxation in the United States. So there is a particular deficit here in terms of how our government actually looks at philanthropy. Thankfully, the Social Innovation Fund and several funds that have been set up in recent times as a consequence of the departure of both Atlantic Philanthropy and, and the One Foundation has actually driven government to think more laterally about the process of actually of co-funding projects. So, so, yeah. so with the Social Innovation Fund, it's euro for euro for, for business funding. The government will, will match that. Pre precisely. And that fund in actual fact in part comes from dormant accounts and so forth that were set up, well, if you remember going back mm -hmm. to previous uh, ministers of finance. Yeah, philanthropy possibly is, I don't know whether it's a concept of misunderstanding because it has to be based on the principle that philanthropy is not about money. Money is an essential component part of it, but it's not about money. It's about passion. It's about sharing. It's about giving back. It's about believing that other people actually have to coexist with you. And that's happening everywhere. That's not, my mother was a philanthropist. She didn't know she was a philanthropist. Because our engagement with our community, was, by the way, was always looking at the person who was actually less well off because she came from that background, so she had to figure it out herself. So if we can figure that out, by the way, we can actually make it more aware. Believe it or not, the, the, the issue of philanthropy is changing dramatically because of our young people. So if you're talking to young people in colleges and schools and secondary and particularly in the university, they see it because now they understand it and they believe in it and because it's part of what needs to happen. So, yes. And there's an increasing desire, I suppose, to, to find 
your purpose and your impact on those around you. Yeah, but see, it is the purpose and the impact that actually is going to change, right? So like we, as a company, by the way, develop it on the principle that we have our headquarters in Tala. Our staff are from the Tala region. So it's if, philanthropic HR before yeah, you even do anything. Before you start. And then if we can engage with community efforts, whether it's a school project or whether it's to do with a, a men's shed or whether it's to do with a, a local community project, whatever the case may be, then we're giving back to that community. The consequence of that is multiplicable from our point of view because our staff who live in the community are getting the benefit of what we're doing. They possibly are actually contributing to the choices. So therefore, it, it's a multiple. It's just a multiple. Look, you're speaking to the converted. I, I believe passionately in social entrepreneurs and, and uh, exploits. And I, I, I've been that soldier and continue to be that soldier. And there's, there's something, um, one of the organisations, Dress for Success, that I founded, which is a social enterprise, we, we often say that we're not sure who gets more out of it, the client or the volunteer, because everybody wins. Um, and I know giving is good is one of your... Well, it's a strap line, but I mean, I didn't, I, I'm sure I quite certainly didn't give, giving is good, by the way, but the point is that at the end of the day, I feel good, my team feel good. I think in actual fact, it, it, it actually, I'm picking a point in time when I was 50, when, I, when that actually happened in, in a conscious way that Adam and myself actually believed that we felt that we had enough in our lives in terms of personal wealth, and our children actually had got what we believe was an opportunity to make their own lives. And that was the time possibly that we began to think about giving something back and in a planned is, way. Isn't that the point though, that philanthropy is, is, is a consequence of that security and stability in yourself? And you can't really um, get to that point um, w without, without knowing that yourself and your family are secure. But remember again, there's always a way of judging philanthropy if it's about the pound or the euro. It's very easy to judge because people who have can give. It's if, you, if, we, if we focus on that, that quantum or the, the opportunity because you have it as the measure of actually what philanthropy is, then I think we miss the point. Absolutely. We miss the point. We have to concentrate on it in a more holistic way. Right, because it can be hours any, given. It can be hours given. It can be yeah. any measure, you know. And, it, it, and I think that's the key. That is and so, key. what needs to change in the landscape of philanthropy in this country? Most importantly, I think people who are giving, either in their personal time or in financial commitments, by the way, need to be more public about actually giving, because that's the encouragement and that's the actual catalyst that will bring other people into that space. There are still significant amount of people in this country who actually build up an accumulated wealth and like the idea of counting it. They have to stop counting it and start giving it. And what role does the government have in this? Well, the, the government is paying a significant role at the moment, by the way, because of the fact that they have the social innovation fund set up. A bit. However, there is an issue of tax. Now, I'm not going to get into debate about how what is the best method of actually calculating tax, by the way, because every euro that goes into any charitable organisation at the moment from a, an individual, by the individual who's actually a payee, is actually credited, provided you sign the declaration, sure. and you get 30% back in tax and so forth. There are other ways where corporations and individual companies, by the way, can actually get benefit by actually being more friendly. I leave that debate to the better, to people who understand it better. And I think that really comes into play then when you look at multinationals 
situated in Ireland as well. I mean, not not any more so, but there was a fantastic conversation had recently around, you know, how how can you um, encourage. Um, you know, foreign direct investment companies to engage in communities, and and what does that look like? If you know, and a lot of them would have CSR um, policies mm. in place anyway. But I, I do think I do think it's interesting that you're talking about. Um, philanthropists themselves, whether corporate philanthropists or individual philanthropists, being comfortable with that process. Because I know from talking to a number of people who, who are very philanthropic that they don't want to be seen to be personally gaining from that, um, that action and that maybe publicising it could be seen as, as personal gain. I think there's a very, very, that, that's very true because in fact people will be critical so in some ways, the media will actually pick it up and say, by the way, look at your man boasting about the fact that he's giving his money away again. And that's a tragedy. Mm. That is a really tragedy about it. Instead of actually praising the fact that, he, that that individual or that corporation had made that personal choice, and now look at the benefit, measure the outcome rather than the, in, the input. I absolutely agree with you, because I think it is like anything that you're trying to change. You needed to get it to a point of normalization before people stop noticing it, oh, in, in a way. You know, make it normal to give. But look at the organisation Social Entrepreneurs Ireland. Mm. Look and measure the success of their, what, 20 years, I think they've been around since Declan Ryan founded. It is just unmeasurable if that had not been there. What the successes, but more importantly, what has been the legacy of what has actually been created by that. Absolutely. Menchard is just an example of that, by the way. Menchard is just one example of that, but there are many more. Yeah. No, it's 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 fantastic, and I've certainly been um, a beneficiary of of those organisations in terms of terms of mentorship, and and they are fantastic, not only for the the rewards, but massively for the network. Without a doubt. Without and a doubt. and I suppose uh, it's a natural point to come to you on on the the Entrepreneur of the Year award, uh, and and the network that that brings into play. It's a massive part of that program. I was a reluctant participant. Were you really? I think you probably weren't the only one. I think a lot of people have to think long and hard. See, when you when you approach when you're approached or when you think about it, like you you think about it, it's another network. The last thing I wanted, like three years ago, was another network. I think I had enough networks at that point in my life. All full up here. And it wasn't that I was full, but I just didn't feel I needed it. Now, but that seems very selfish. But at the time, and then when I got into the process, and particularly when I got engagement in the early stages before the actual, the, 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 the judging and then the, the finals were announced, by the way, and having traveled to Boston, I felt this is, this is a family I, I, I actually totally absorbed by. And I can safely say there's not a day in my life that I'm not engaged with that family or that alumni. It's just an extraordinary, I mean, literally before I came into this interview, I was reading stuff and actually it was popping up and people talking to each other. And that is, you cannot measure that. By the way, the broader can, context that that must give you as as um, as an owner of a company like Healy Group, it, it, it's astonishing. And, and by the way, it's completely within that circle. So there's literally things being said to each other. By the way, that it, and by the way, then there's the private side of that. By the way, you can pick up the phone and speak to any one of those individuals who you feel can make a contribution to your issue at that moment in time, and know that you'll get an answer. Maybe not the solution, but you'll get an answer. And that's you can't invaluable. You can't pay for that. So all of that family, the uh, the EY family, they must all be feeling the effects of that that must be mentioned, Brexit. <laughs> there can't be one of them that can't be affected. 
How how is it affecting your business right now? Because fifty percent of your uh, business is UK and Ireland. Is that right? It, it, it's significantly. I'd say Great Britain. The operational side of the UK is actually significantly larger than Ireland for obviously because the scale is yes. there. Uh, and um, when you look, when, when you are actually a distributing company, so I'm a raw material manufacturing agent. So therefore, everything I sell is produced by somebody else in some other domain. And if I look at my raw material supply lines into my UK operation, now by the way, it has a direct line into the Irish operation as well. So it's not. The, I'm not going to make it uniquely exclusive to the United Kingdom because Brexit actually affects in both directions. In both directions. Let's concentrate on what's happening in the United Kingdom. So all my manufacturing supply lines are coming out of mainland Europe, predominantly. So the consequence of this, in actual fact, if there is a hard border, means overnight WTO rules are introduced. Therefore, every single kilo and every single euro and every single pound of value I'm bringing into the United Kingdom is going to be subject to duty. At a level that may make that uncompetitive for both myself as the selling agent, but more importantly for my consumer, the manufacturing sector, who are endeavoring to sell to the supermarket chains. So, that, like that's so everybody's affected, your absolutely. supplier, yourself, your absolutely. consumer. And at the same time, I'm sitting in Ireland with my Irish customers, I'm doing exactly the same here. So their endeavourment actually is produce product and able to sell to the international markets. Like remember that we are an export-oriented country. So therefore everything that I'm bringing in here, irrespective of the fact that it's not capped by a duty, has to have an imposition of a duty potentially into the United Kingdom market, so therefore the, it has the same, same effect. So I cannot calculate that in terms of my problem in financial terms. In financial terms, until such time as I have certainty. And when certainty happens then, I have to figure out in each individual sector and each individual client, what do I do next? So if there's a hard border, what do you do? Uh, I make that call to everyone and I actually ask them that question. So each individual client of mine will have to figure out and expect whether they continue to work with me at the values that the taxes and the duties are going to impose upon them in order for them to survive. And then the knock-on effect of that is that there's a negotiation between them and my manufacturing sites in Europe who are producing the raw materials and whether they're prepared to see the British market as a continuing opportunity for them to sell into. And they could decide, without consulting with me, that that's not a market that's attractive anymore. And then the third part of this equation, unfortunately, is the consequence of a sterling weakening. Now, I heard this morning, I'm sure you did too, on most of the international news, is that the ERSI were predicting in actuality that we could go back to parity. Now, it doesn't take a genius, by the way, and you don't have to be a great sums man to figure out what the consequence of that for Irish export is going to be and what that consequence will be for me as an importer of raw material from Europe into the United Kingdom market. So with your facilities in the UK, what's happening right now? We have an innovation centre. So the, the, the centre of everything we do by way of innovation and creativity, by the way, is based in Leicestershire. So we have a very large facility on three and a half acres there. Uh, it, it's essentially a blending facility. It is a warehousing facility. But in the heart of that, we have a, a theatre which is a university theatre, which has a very large kitchens. Uh, we bring a couple of hundred people every month into that facility. We demonstrate what we're doing by way of the innovations we're bringing to the market. We have our chefs there and we produce product for them and then they taste it and they, take it and they bring it back to their supermarket clients and hopefully we get business as a consequence of that. 
Uh, and in terms of, uh, there's a lot of talk about stockpiling and this sort of, um, you know, everybody getting ready for the big moment. Uh, is that something that affects you? Of course it is, because most of my clients actually are aware of our facility. So they're actually in some ways using us to supplement their own stocking our raw material supply lines in our facility. So we have had a kind of a slightly um, windfall opportunity, both in Dublin and in the United Kingdom, because our warehouses are full. I'd like to have several more warehouses, but that is a short-termism, because the short-termism in Actifact will be eliminated once the, uh, I think in Actifact, I heard that um, the cheese mountain in the UK of Irish cheese, by the way, is something like 40,000 tons. Now, that's an extraordinary amount of, of cheese, but like that's only a short-term. So it's six months down the road, mm -hmm. like your warehouses could be empty. Yes. Or the consequence of what's happening could be, could be quite different. So what are the opportunities in this situation? And again, with the caveat that nobody's exactly sure what's going to happen. Are, are there good things that can come out of this? I would safely say that there are great opportunities for Irish companies to invest in British companies. First and foremost, this is the opposite caveat of what we talked about currency. If sterling depletes, then values actually decrease as a consequence of that. And there will be opportunities for to pick up companies mm -hmm. that could potentially add to the portfolio. And we are looking at that at the moment. So we would be looking at the things that would actually be synergistically in terms of product lines. So that's an opportunity. I'd safely say in actual fact that uh, at the end of the day, the equilibrium of, of any market will actually happen over time. Um, it's the initial shock that actually is the biggest problem. And that shock could last for up to two or three or four years. And that's the problem for me at the moment. And that is the hard Brexit that we're that's talking about. Brexit. I don't believe it'll happen. Do you not? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, the pragmatism has to come into this. And unfortunately, at look, some stage. Yeah, but if you look at the House of Commons, you can't believe there's any pragmatism there in actual fact. The Muppet Show in actual fact would be better to watch but, than watching that. But at the same time, I think in actual fact that it will actually happen. Sense will prevail. Sense will prevail. And, and the, the maneuverability of what's happening, certainly in the last 48 hours, particularly with the, 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 the conversations that are happening now, I think that Macron actually in Paris this week and certainly Mrs. Merkel yesterday actually showed great solidarity with the Irish people. And certainly with the Irish government from the point of view of making sure that we're not being hung out to dry at some Absolutely. point in the future. Absolutely. So uh, Brexit is a crisis in its own right, uh, a crisis of um, certainty. It's not the first crisis I'm sure that you've had in your life, in your business life. Um, we, we were talking earlier on about Ben Horowitz and uh, the hard yes. thing about hard things, uh, the must read for anybody who Absolutely. wants to grow and scale a business. Um, he, he talks about uh, a WIFIO, so we're bleeped, it's over. The moment where you think you might as well just throw your keys in the ditch. What was that moment? 2006, uh, we were the representative of a company called Tate & Lyle. I had built this very fine facility I spoke about earlier in terms of our Leicester facility. I'd spent a great deal of my personal money building this, I believe to be the future of the organization. And I got a phone call uh, from Tate Line in London and they said, by the way, we've decided not to use you anymore. So overnight I was being informed that approximately 80% of my business was gone. And uh, um, I, 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 red wine became very important at that point. <laughs> <of time>. Any <laughs> anesthetic. It became the anesthetic. And, I genuinely didn't know what to do. Now, I, I was fortunate in one sense. I had a very good partner in Germany called Emsland, and they recognized that particular problem. And, and again, without their, their facilitation, I could not have survived. So they effectively bought half the company. 
within two or three hours, they, two or three weeks in fact, of that crisis, I had sold 50% of my company to them. And do they still own? They still do to this day. Okay, and a happy partnership. Exactly what I would have said, a happy partnership. And that was the greatest crisis because the combination of that and then trying to replace that piece of business took several years and lots of other things happened in that particular, which one crisis led to other crisis. We took on things we should not have done. We brought in product into our facility we should never have handled. That consequences then had, I, I remember working from four in the morning, literally till 12 at night, trying to get that solved. What was the one lesson then that you walked away with? The lesson was write it down and get it signed. I had, no, <laughs> I had no contract. I had no contract. So when I built the facility in England, I did not approach my principal, my supplier, and get them to sign a contract that gave me surety. Wise words. And when they changed management, they didn't like me, the personality, and I had nothing to support what I'd already created. There you go. My God. That's the wisdom right there. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the future. So um, I know from doing a little bit of reading about you that uh, people are not shy of asking you to stand down and when you're ready to retire. You don't look like a man who is ready to take up pipe and slippers right now. What's, what's the next 10 years look like? I have told you four sons who effectively are managing the business day to day every single day and that's the gift of waking up every single morning. I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing because the sense of enjoyment of going into my office or getting on a plane or visiting one of my sites or meeting the people who work with me and who work very closely with me gives me great satisfaction. I don't have a desire to smoke. I pipe. <laughs> I, I, I was just a metaphorical pipe. I, I do have four beautiful grandchildren currently, and I want to spend as much time as I can with them as they're growing into life. And that's the pleasure I want to take out the rest of my life is actually having them around me and loving them and caring for them and giving them a little bit and spoiling them a little bit, by the way. But I don't want to stop working. And I believe in actual fact that the day that I stop working is the day that I'm actually in a coffin. And that, that may be at least here, but I genuinely want to work up to the moment that I have to, have to go back to meet my parents. Can I ask you, why has Healy Group been a success? That is uh, a huge question. I mean, a huge question to even try and contemplate an answer for. I would safely say that I had had wonderful luck and at one point I felt I couldn't do anything wrong and I, things happened like the Midas touch that I could not have actually, I could never replicate in a, normal, in a normal environment to this day. So a significant proportion of it was actually a great deal of luck and luck then teaches you things. Now by the way, mistakes also teaches you things so that there, I, I presume the success is having to accept the luck of actually getting things right by mistake and actually accepting things you got wrong and make sure you don't do them again. Sometimes your bad luck is your good luck. Exactly. Beautiful way of saying it. Morris, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you'll come back another time I and uh, spend another hour making us happy. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Joe's Architects of Business in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Thanks to all the team here at Maximum Studios and to my guest, Morris Healy.
If you haven't already done so, please do subscribe to the show to get a brand new episode for free into your feed every fortnight. I'm Sonia Lennon. Take care and talk soon. The Architects of Business on Joel, in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, telling the inspirational stories behind Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs.